Well, good morning. You can take your seats if you can find them. You know, every family switches around the living room furniture every once in a while, right? Well, I, I want to welcome uh, any visitors that are here this morning, especially um, Connie and I have uh, old friends from uh, our college days. Jim and Kathy Wybley are here with us. Um, and also, my barber is here today, Tracy. He actually cuts Daniel's hair, he cuts John's hair, and he cuts my hair. So you can either praise him or not so much. So, <clears throat> Well, if you get, we're continuing our teaching series on the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you can open to 1 Corinthians 7, uh, we're going to cover the second half of that passage. It's a challenging passage. Some of the commentaries say it's the most um, challenging passage in the letter to the Corinthians, the 1 Corinthians. Um, and so please open to, and, and open it and then keep it open during the sermon. We're going to be referring to it often. Uh, so please stand for the reading of this passage. I've asked Becca to read the whole passage. It's a long passage, but I just felt there's so much in there that we need to hear it. Um, so if you're like me, you have, to, you have to remind yourself, this is God's word. Pay attention and don't drift off. So, Becca. A reading from God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. 
The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, Francis Schaeffer was a 20th century theologian, philosopher, and Presbyterian pastor. And he was one of the most influential voices in the evangelical church in the 1970s and in the 1980s. And um, here's a picture of him. I think it's going to come up here. Maybe. There, there he is. Um, he was an interesting guy. And he, he wrote a number of books. Uh, that were influential, and one of them was titled, How Then Should We Live? And it had to do with the rise and decline of Western civilization. Uh, the title of the book came from the question, how are Christians going to live their lives in light of the fact that Western culture in the 20th century, century was clearly separating itself from biblical truths? That question, how then should we live, is one that every person that comes to Christ must ask themselves. How am I now going to live? It's the question that Paul was addressing in our passage this morning. The Corinthian church was made up largely of Gentile believers who had come out of a, a worldly pagan culture. They had been converted and they were following the Lord. And they were asking Paul, how shall I now live my life? All of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation helps us to answer that question. But today we're going to look specifically at what Paul told the Corinthians about how to live as believers in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and as we do, we should keep in mind what Sinclair Ferguson said was a fundamental principle about how we should approach a passage of Scripture. He said we reflect first on what the words communicated to those who heard them, and then we work out with the help of the Spirit how they apply to us. Let's ask the Lord to help us with both of those tasks. Lord, we, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. We can do nothing apart from the power of the Holy Spirit for you, and so we pray that the Spirit would, would help me today to speak well, and that your spirit would help us to hear well, Lord, 
so that we could truly live for you, O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I have four points as to what it means to live for Christ. One, we live under God's sovereignty. Uh, Two, we live with a right focus. Uh, Three, we live with an eternal perspective. And the fourth one is, we live devoted to Jesus. So the first verse of our text reads, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Paul was in Corinth for 18 months. He was preaching. uh, He was was ministering as an evangelist, as a pastor, as a teacher, and as an apostle. Um, And people were hearing the gospel, and they were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And some of them were Jewish believers, but probably most of them were Gentiles. Um, Some were slaves or bondservants. Some were single. Some were betrothed or engaged to be married. Um, Some were married to a fellow believer, and some were married to non-Christians. And these new converts were asking how they should live now that they had become followers of Jesus. And they had lots of questions. You know, part of the book of 1 Corinthians is Paul answering their questions. Um, And often when, you know, someone comes to the Lord, especially as an adult who has been living in the world, they think that they should make big outward changes in their life. Now, this is certainly true when it comes to clearly sinful practices or being involved in, sinful, in a sinful relationship or a sinful business. You know, turning from clear sinful activities is part of what it means to come to Christ and to follow him. However, when it comes to the condition that, conditions that are not sinful but maybe not ideal, Um, at least in the mind of a new convert, their tendency is to want to get out of those situations right away. And that's understandable. However, new Christians often lose sight of the fact that the main work of the Spirit is inward in our hearts and minds, not necessarily our physical circumstances. So Paul's response to the Corinthians was to live as Christians in the place that they have become believers. In verse 24, he tells them, So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now, this is not a categorical statement. I don't think Paul was saying, you must stay in this condition for the rest of your life. In fact, we know that because um, in verse um, 21, he tells them if if one is a bondservant and he has the opportunity to get their freedom, he should take it. He also says, if you're, you're single or you're engaged to be married or you're a widow, you are free to marry. You know, living under God's sovereignty, that is the fact that God rules and reigns over all things, it requires wisdom. We acknowledge that the Lord has placed us or permitted us to be in the situation we find ourselves in And we are to look to him for how we move forward. And here in verse 17, I think Paul is saying to recognize the condition you were in when you were converted and seek to God, serve God there. You know, the most important thing is not so much our circumstances, but the fact that we were called in the Lord. And that's part of the answer uh, to the question, how should we live? 
We live as those that, who have been called by, by the Lord. He called us. He saved us. We are ambassadors of Christ, regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves living in. And we're called to testify and live for God and minister to others in the place that we find ourselves today. You know, we, we can be tempted to think that life will begin in the future, right? We're always kind of thinking that's going to happen rather than living today and embracing the opportunities that God gives us in our current circumstances. Life is lived out in the ordinary days and situations that we find ourselves in. So what condition or situation do you find yourself in? You know, some of us are students, some of us are single, some of us are retired, some of us are married with many children, some of us are married uh, empty nesters, some are under, underemployed, that is, they, they'd like to have a better job, some are unemployed, some are single parents, some are caring for aging parents, and some of us are fill-in-the-blank. Wherever you find yourself living today, under God's fatherly presence. See, we're often not in the ideal situation at work, at home, or even in ministry. Don't wait until you're in the ideal situation to live for Christ. Don't wait for the ideal job or the ideal marriage or family or ministry opportunity. Live for him today in his loving presence. You know, many translations read in, in verse 20, in whatever condition each was called, there let him abide with God. So wherever we find ourselves today, he is there with you. His presence is with you. Even in hard situations. And some translations actually use the word calling. As in, let each man abide in that calling wherein he was called. See, you might ask, well, what's your calling, right? Well, our calling is found in our particular situation or condition that we live in. Now, that may change in the future, but today it's part of our calling. You know, maybe the bondservant was going to get their freedom in a year or two, but today they were called to serve God as a bondservant. And this was something that Paul lived out himself. You know, later in his life, Paul was imprisoned, and he wrote a number of letters, one of which was a letter to the church of Philippi. And he said, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, what has happened to me, there's the sovereignty of God, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. See, Paul could have been tempted to fret and to worry that he wasn't able to live out his calling as an apostle while he was in prison. He may have been tempted to overlook the opportunities that he had to serve the Lord right there in jail. Fortunately, Paul practiced what he preached. 
And because of that, it, it meant fruitful ministry for those who were with him in prison and those who, uh, for Christians outside the prison walls as well. Now, personally, I've been encouraged by observing those in our congregation who are in conditions that are challenging. I've observed some of you struggling financially or those who are caring for parents and therefore restricted it in your schedule. I know some of you have critical health conditions. And some of you are single and desire to be married. Some of you are single parents, yet you continue to serve God joyfully. Thank you. The genuineness of your faith is being revealed, and it not only glorifies God, but it encourages others and is an example to others. One point of application in this first point would be to pray to walk in the good works that God has prepared for us. Now, you might ask, why should I pray for them if God has already prepared them for me? Well, because we believe in the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Charles Spurgeon was once asked if he could reconcile those two truths to each other. I wouldn't try, he replied. I never reconcile friends. So pray, pray that whatever circumstances you find yourself in today, that God will provide good works for you to walk in, right there, right where you live today. Well, our second point on how do we live for God is that we do it with a right focus. You know, when a child begins to play baseball, what is it that we always tell them when they get up to bat, right? Keep your eye on the ball, right? Now, for a six-year-old, you know, they're, they're saying, what? You know, what do you mean? Well, what we mean is don't get distracted. Don't get distracted by other players or by the fans or by your parents or by that cute bunny in the outfield, right? Keep looking at the ball so that you will make contact with it. And this is what I think Paul is encouraging the Corinthians in, how they ought to live. They should live with the right focus. They should keep their eye on the ball. In verses 18 and 19, he says to them, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Now, we don't know exactly why Paul is addressing this issue of circumcision and uncircumcision. You know, apparently the Corinthians had some questions. And without going into details on either of those, we can surmise or conjecture that it may have been for either social or spiritual uh, reasons. Maybe a Jewish believer was feeling it was better for them to hide their circumcision for acceptance in the culture and or the church. You know, circumcision was ridiculed by some in Corinthian culture. Or maybe they did this because Paul and others had declared that it wasn't necessary for believers to be circumcised. Faith in Christ led to an inner circumcision of the heart that occurs when the Spirit regenerates us. On the other hand, 
for a Gentile believer, maybe they were influenced by the circumcision party. Those who are actually just saying the opposite, that a Christian needs to be circumcised to be part of God's people, like the Jews. Now, Paul refutes this, but that was one of the issues that was raging in the church. Paul's encouragement, however, is for them to focus on what is most important, obeying God's word, his commandments found in Holy Scripture. This really mirrors what Daniel said to us last week in the introduction to his teaching on marriage and divorce. He said, the way to happiness and holiness is to live it according to God's word, whether in our singleness or in our marriage. Now, one is not justified by their obedience, but by saving faith in Christ. However, obedience to God is evidence of our faith. It's what God calls us to as believers. It's how we live. And it's actually part of our calling as believers. And the Corinthians were tempted to be preoccupied with circumstantial or peripheral matters rather than what's truly important. You might think that being a bondservant wasn't a peripheral matter. And Paul wasn't minimizing the challenge of being in that position. Remember, he advocated for their freedom if they could get it. But he wanted them to know that there was something more important than their outward circumstances, living by the clear teachings of Scripture. There was a real temptation in Paul's time, and and it's true for us today, to get sidetracked from the really important things of the Christian life. Things like devotion to God's word, prayer, fellowship, evangelism, discipleship, and serving and caring for others. We must watch what's trending politically or socially or culturally or, or debates about technology and health and diet issues, and even theological or moral issues. I'm not saying that none of those things are important. It's important to understand current issues and to be thoughtful about them. But we must watch that we don't get caught up with others who are raging about whatever is raging. We must keep our eye on the ball. Stephen Covey, who wrote the bestseller, the seven habits of highly effective people, said that we should keep the main thing, the main thing. And I think what Paul was saying, that we should keep, Christians should keep the main things, the main things of the Christian life, the main thing. And Paul addresses this matter of having the right focus often in his letters. He says in Galatians 5, for in Christ Jesus Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Those are two of the most important dynamics of the Christian life. Faith in God and in his promises and loving God and loving one another. That's what we should focus on regardless of our circumstances and regardless of what's trending out there in the culture. We need to keep our eye on the ball. You know, our mission statement as a church is we're called to love God, 
love one another, and love our neighbors. He keeps coming back to this issue about circumcision, and he says in Galatians 6, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. See, the inward working of the Spirit in one's life is far more important than what's happening on the outside or outward appearances or peripheral issues. And again, he reiterates this in Colossians 3. He says, here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ, Christ is all and in all. So our, our identity of being in Christ is far more important than our cultural or ethnic background. Those things have some importance, but they, they pale in comparison to the glory of being found in Jesus. So how can we maintain <clears throat> the right focus in living for God? Well, I think one clear way is just regularly abide in God's word. When we don't do that, we lose our minds, right? We drift, our affections drift, and we're prone to wander. We become like the Corinthians who Paul reproved in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. He said, I, bro but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So spending daily time in Scripture helps us to renew our mind, to stay the course, and to hear the Spirit's promptings and illuminations on what's really important. Remember Jesus said to, to Martha, Mary has chosen the good, the good part. That's the only thing that's really necessary to hear, to be with Christ and to be hearing his word. You know, I don't know about you, but often when I go into my devotional time, <clears throat> I'm kind of in, I'm in outer space, right? I, I feel like the Corinthians, like a person of the flesh. But after interacting with God and his word, I come out of that time as a Christian, focus on living for God. You know, it's our food it's, and drink, and we should dine with Christ every day in it. Well, our, th <clears throat> our third point is we live with an eye to eternity. The most, the most challenging part of our text is in verses 25 to 31 and 36 to 38. So this calls for some context. Paul begins by saying in verse 25, now concerning the betrothed. Now, many translations use the words virgins, but the ESV uses betrothed, but also then has a footnote that says the Greek word literally means virgins. And then in verses 36, 37, and 38, he use, actually uses the same Greek word, but there he's clearly speaking of someone that's betrothed or engaged to be married. He speaks about someone's behavior towards their betrothed. 
And the most widely held view among commentators is that in verse 25, he's speaking of a, a woman who was engaged or betrothed. But regardless, I think Paul's counsel applies both to the unmarried and unengaged single as it does to the single who is betrothed. Apparently, the Corinthians had questions about couples who were, had, who were engaged and singles. Um, maybe, maybe those who were betrothed had done so at a young age and before they had become believers. So should they go on and get married? If they were betrothed, should it be a short engagement or a long engagement? Should single Christians think about getting married? It's likely that before their conversions, most or all of the Corinthians have been influenced by the culture in terms of sexuality. And then when they became believers, it's possible that some of them swung to an opposite extreme of thinking that no one should get married. You know, we don't really know the specifics and the dynamics that are behind the Corinthians in terms of their questions. All we really know is uh, how Paul responded to them. And that's really what we want to focus on, how Paul responded to them. Another reason that uh, for this being a challenging part of the passage is that Paul writes of a current and impending crisis. So in verse 26, he says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. And in verse 29, he says, the appointed time has grown very short. Verse 31, he talks about, for the present form of this world is passing away. So commentators do not agree, or, or they don't really know, whether there was some event going on or about to happen that was in crisis mode, like, like a famine or an impending famine. They're not sure about that. Paul also could have been referring to the comments of Jesus from Luke 21 about the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, this wasn't going to happen for 15 years, but it was known that Jesus had made this comment in Luke 21. He said, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Or Paul may just be referring to the challenge of living in a fallen world and that the return of, of Jesus was imminent. You know, Paul, like almost every Christian since the first century, thought that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime. And so should we, right? We should live ready for the return of Christ. Now, to compound the, uh, the challenge of this part of the passage, Paul was a man with a gift of singleness, and therefore he advocates for it. And he's not just a man who is single during a certain season of his life. Many of you may be in that situation, but with the expectation and hope that sometime in the future, future you will marry. Paul had the gift of singleness. He was happy in it, and he did not intend to marry. Now, he does make room for marriage. He does say that it's okay, it's okay for the single or the engaged or the widow to get married. Though he feels that it would be better for them to be as he was, single and undistracted in their devotion to the Lord. 
So concerning singleness, <clears throat> I think it's, it's good to remember Jesus' words in Matthew 19. And you have, to, you have to appreciate the honesty of Scripture. So this is right after Jesus tells the disciples that you can only divorce if there's adultery. And the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, concerning singleness, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So he's a little bit more uh, cautious, I think, than Paul is. He's, he, he's, he's encouraging it, but he is not necessarily as strong maybe as Paul is. If you have the gift of singleness, as Paul did, receive it from the Lord. Use it like he did for service and devotion to the Lord and to others, and use it with wisdom. In a similar way, um, if you're in a, se a, season, a season of singleness, see it as a time in your life with an opportunity to advance God's kingdom in a way that you may not have in the future in regards to your time. Use it with wisdom. And I think this also applies at some level to married couples without children and married couples with grown children. They are more free to serve the Lord. And I know there's many in our church, older folks that have done that. Whether you are single or married, and this is our third point. Sorry, it took us a while to get here. Whether you're single or married, we are encouraged by Paul to have a kingdom or an eternal perspective. That is how we ought to live. So, again, looking at our text in verse 29, he says, This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has come very short. From now on, that those who have wives live as though they have none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it for the present form of this world is passing away. The scripture often calls us to view life in its transitory state. It's temporal and vain or empty status. There is a greater reality than marriage and rejoicing and mourning and buying and selling and all that goes on in life. It is the eternal kingdom of God. Now, we are called to live in this world and even to enjoy the blessings of this life. But at another level, we are to live for something far greater, knowing that the pleasures of this life are temporal and will be far surpassed in the age to come. C.S. Lewis wrote, Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. Home is much more glorious. You know, when I first heard the call of Christ upon my life, 
I became aware that to follow him meant that I would no longer think or feel or act in the same way as I was living. The things of the earth were ultimately not, not what I was to live for. And this was radical to me. And this was beyond me. I was like the rich young ruler that went away sadly until the grace of God prevailed in my life. Because this, this is a world change, a, a worldview change. It's a paradigm shift. For every Christian, they must embrace it. There is a cost to it. But there is a far greater glory to it. And we should live, we should live with that awareness. And we're going to look at three quick scriptures, and they're familiar ones, but don't allow their familiarity to, to keep you from seeing the glory in them. 1 Corinthians 2.9, but as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Romans 8 for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And in 2 Corinthians 4, for this light momentary affliction, and if you're suffering this morning, it may, I know it does not seem like a light momentary affliction, but Paul's speaking about uh, from all eternity, from that viewpoint. And Paul, Paul suffered. He knew suffering. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. And if we can, if we can leave that, those verses up for a minute. You know, J.I. Packer remarks that this word look in the Greek, implies an intense, steady gaze. And he adds that we should have a mental and spiritual discipline of sustained thought about the goal of glory. See, we should think about it. We should sing about it. We should long for it. Whether you're 18 or 88, we should long for the glory of the coming kingdom of God. Yes, we live in this world, but we should live longing for that kingdom. See, the challenge for the Christian is to be free to enjoy the blessings of this life, but not to hold on to them too tightly. We don't want to be those who overvalue the temporal things of this world, and we don't want to be those who underestimate the unfathomable riches that wait for us in glory in Christ. Augustine said, we cannot love what is eternal unless we cease to love what is temporal. Now, that's a challenging word for, for all of us. He also said, if the, things of this light, if the things of this life delight you, praise God for them, but turn your love away from them and give it to their maker. 
See, this is no pie-in-the-sky theology. It's living for God in this age with motivated by an eye to eternity and the glory of Christ. Well, I want to close by discussing that the way that we are to live as Christians is by being devoted to Jesus. In verse 35, Paul expresses his desire for the Corinthians to live lives of undivided devotion to the Lord. We are called to do that whether we are single or married, kids at home or empty nest, working or retired. Yes, in certain seasons of life, we will have the opportunity to spend more time directly serving God. And one of the things you should be asking yourself is, am I in one of those seasons? And if so, do I see the blessing and the opportunity that I have during this time? But in all seasons of life, we should seek to live for God out of our devotion to his son. Now, we will never do this perfectly, but it should be the motivating factor on how we live our lives. So how do we cultivate that? Well, first, let me address the non-Christian and also the nominal Christian. That is the person who says they're a Christian, but is not living for him. This nominal Christian may not really be a believer. Now, I'm not making any judgments on anyone. It's possible that you're, if you're in that situation, maybe you're just a discouraged, defeated Christian. But it should give you some concern about your spiritual state state if you're not actively living for God. You know, one of the things that I noticed about Christians when I first heard the gospel was they were living for Christ. It was an intangible but evident trait to me. And it scared me. It overwhelmed me. I was, I was okay with sharing my life at some level with the Lord, but surrendering to him and serving him and living for him, I just couldn't get my arms. And even more importantly, I couldn't get my heart around that. If that's you today, I encourage you to call out to God to change your heart. You know, part of what it means to be saved by grace alone is that you can't save yourself. You can't change your heart. You must be born again. Go to God in faith and in honest humility and beseech him to save you and to change your heart. And if you say, Mike, I'm a Christian, but often I'm not living for him, then I would say call out to him as well. Not to save you, but to revive you. And then begin to utilize the habits of grace. Things like reading the New Testament, praying, hearing God's word preached, fellowshipping with God's people, reading Christian books. Avail yourself of God's help and power as you seek him. Believe God to meet you in a mighty way. Remember, faith is one of the important components that we should focus on. God gives grace to the humble. And remember, Scripture teaches both the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. 
So the non-Christian calls out to the Lord for a new heart, whereas the Christian is one who already has one. He has been, he or she has been born again of the Spirit. In Ezekiel, it speaks of this, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. See, the Christian cultivates a devotion to Christ by keeping their heart for him. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. That is the full-time job of the Christian, keeping one's heart devoted to God. Now, there's much we can say about keeping our heart, but let me focus on one aspect of it found in our text, and that is stoking our love for Christ. We don't want to live for Christ out of guilt or legalism or tradition or the fear of man. We want it to be fueled by our gratefulness and our love for him. Stoke means to encourage or incite a strong emotion. And that's what the gospel should do for us. There is a gospel citing in this passage. It's in verse 23. You were bought with a price. Christians are those who have been purchased by the blood of their king. And this really should be the great motivator for the Christian, living for God out of gratitude for what Christ has done for us. C.S. Lewis talked about Christianity being like the fairy tale that was true. Think about it. The holy, majestic, loving Son of God, came to earth. He lived a perfect and sinless life. He became a servant, healing, preaching, teaching, loving, shepherding men and women, caring for their souls. And then he allowed himself to be betrayed and forsaken, even by his closest friends, crucified on a cross and experiencing the wrath of God on our behalf, including being forsaken by God the Father so that we would be accepted by God the Father. And then he was gloriously raised from the dead. This is not a fairy tale. It's the truth of the gospel. And we should write that story on the tablet of our heart over and over and over again. The message of the gospel is about our justification by faith alone. It locates us that at every moment of the day, even times of discouragement, times of that struggle against sin, it, re it locates us that we are a child of God, accepted by God. But the message of the gospel is even more so the exaltation of the Son of God given for us. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, what does he tell us to do? Remember me. 
Remember that my body was broken for you. Remember that my blood was shed for you. Remember that I was raised for your justification and your joy. Galatians 2 said that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Let us feed our minds and our souls and our hearts with remembering what our Savior did as he went to Calvary for us and for our salvation. Let's pray, and then we will sing about it. Lord, we do thank you, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. You came and you lived a sinful, sinless, holy, beautiful life. And you were betrayed and crucified and took upon yourself the sins of all those who would believe upon you. And then you were raised from the dead. Lord, help us to write that upon our heart and mind so that we could be those who live for you out of gratefulness and out of love for you freely, Lord. Grant that. Even as we pray this morning, Holy Spirit, breathe upon us. Breathe upon our hearts and our minds as we seek to live for you, Father God, devoted to Jesus Christ. Amen.